Section 10 of The Mysteries of the Ocean Star. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Capricia Page. The Mystery of the Ocean Star by W. Clark Russell. Section 10 Calms and Seas. The experience, writes Sir Richard Hawkins, I had in anno 1590, lying with a fleet of Her Majesty's ships about the islands of Azores, almost six months, the greatest part of the time we being becalmed, with which the sea became so replenished with several sorts of jellies and forms of serpents, adders and snakes, as seemed wonderful, some green, some black, some yellow, some white, some of divers colours, and many of them had life, and some were of a yard and a half and two yards long, which had I not seen, I could have hardly believed. It would be a curious coincidence that Coleridge should have put much such another description as this into the mouth of his ancient mariner, if it were not that there is clear evidence of his having been a reader of Old Perkis, in which the above sentences may be found, as he himself admits when he tells how the dream of Xanadu and Kubla Khan came into his brain on his falling asleep over the worldly old pilgrim's folio. Be this as it may, the dead calm does not pertain, unfortunately, to Elizabethan annals only, though there is a good reason to suppose that, that the marine corpse lights, the weird burning of the water, the slimy things crawling about upon the viscous sea, offers themselves in the sight of no later generation of nautical men than that to which Coleridge's lean and yellow salt belonged. I was much struck by a singular example of a spell of unfanned, motionless sea, given in the form of extracts from the log-book of a Dutch bark named the Narissus, whilst on the voyage to Amsterdam from Java. The account runs as follows. The vessel reached the neighborhood of the equator on February 15th. At times she would glide along about half a mile an hour, but during several watches she did not go forward at all, and then she did not steer. There is a touch of Dutch artlessness in this confession, as though Mynheer the master should own to a little surprise that a vessel without way on her should not answer her helm. On February 19th it was a dead calm for twenty-four hours. On March 6th a very faint air blew. From March 16th until April 9, light breeze. The vessel made a mile and a half, a mile, or nothing per watch. From April the 18th to the 22nd, the cast paws hung southwest, but there was no weight in them to propel the ship. Then the breeze freshened and came on to blow a gale, yet for two months and one week, or in round numbers for sixty-three days, 
the good bark neuresis of amsterdam sinestra master was scarcely more than a painted ship upon a painted ocean the steam fiend may well triumph when he reads such records as this there are steamers which occupy but a few more days to make the voyage out and home to australia than the time taken by the neuresis to cut the line as the old saying was imagination fondly dwells upon the faces and tempers of the dutch crew as day after day came round on der was no wind how much whistling was included in those sixty-three days how many forefingers were wetted and held up how often was the dog vane glared at the sea blessings showered upon the wretched cat's paws coming along in a little curl of blue shadow and expiring in their efforts to reach the bark may be conceived the dutch are a steady phlegmatic people of a temper not easily disturbed but sixty-three days of calm and the ship homeward bound too having come all the way from java and climbed round the cape would go far to vex the soul even of a van dunk who because he never got drunk is universally admired as one of the best examples of sound holland principles it has been truly said that there is no sentiment at sea passengers feel this as fully as sailors once embarked the business is to arrive and poetry particularly when its presentiments are of the hindering sort become an objection and a nuisance otherwise there is no condition or circumstance of a voyage so purely romantic in its colouring and suggestions as the dead calm but this is meant profound stagnation of the atmosphere for as to the sea it is rare indeed to find the great ocean sleeping without some slight heaving of its mighty bosom the equatorial sun shines at noon and in the middle of the brassy heavens like a fiery eye sending the white beam of its glance sheer to the green ooze as one might fancy a thousand fathoms deep the horizon writhes in the palpitating ardency of the dim blue air the swell brims in oil to the blistering hot wet sides of the ship and here and there the black fin of a shark dazzles out to the heave of the dark blue fold twenty draughts of air from all quarters fan the steaming deck with the swaying of the lower canvas and keep the eye impatiently glancing around for the shadow of wind upon the water whatever is touched is so hot that if the hand lingers a bit it is brought away scorched the wheel kicks sullenly in the bulky hold of the helmsman yet there is magnificence inexpressible in this solemn sleep of the ocean under the silent heavens the shaft of splendour lies beneath the sun and there is not the faintest finger of air to break with slender furrow the exquisite clearness of the outline of mirrored glory 
the white brow of the cloud may tremble for a little while over the confines of the deep but it dissolves before it can soar and the dome arches up in several tints of cerulean blue until it brightens into pale gold round about the sun it is impossible to observe such effects in a steamer progress is incessant and the vessel raises a small gale for herself to blow along her decks the dutchmen however saw it all and they did not find it beautiful there was nothing even in schnapps to make sixty-three days of calm endurable canopied by a hovering heaven of stars the cool sweetness of the night could not console them how many new moons were they going to see before amsterdam hove in view the crew doubtless could think of nothing more in their sodiferous bark venus exhibited her silver beauty in vain the silver cross was like the sign of the flying dutchman hanging low over the southern horizon they cared for ursa major only they yearned to see the polar star floating high it is easy to imagine the incredulity with which they listened to the first pipings of the northeaster the whistling in the rigging would be like the ironical imitations of their own efforts to court the breeze they could have prayed against no worse wind than a gale from the north and east but after sixty-three days of calm a month's hurricane dead ahead would we may be sure have been almost as welcome to them as the sight of the schreierstoren seeing that though they were a great number of steamers independent of all breezes afloat there are also as many sailing vessels of all kinds voyaging in every direction it is much to be regretted that the power possessed by ancient seamen of controlling the wind should in this age be a lost art the calm is still oft-times with us but where is the magician where the pin the image of the patron saint the numerous devices by which sailors in former ages delivered their ships out of stagnant seas and proceeded on their voyage with a merry gale making music in their shrouds father dominic navarrete in the seventeenth century discovered certain infallible signs of wind one never-failing token was the running and fluttering about of little insects aboard the ship and the more restless they are the higher the wind and by observing what place they come from mariners shall know if it will be fair another sign according to his reverence is when pigs begin to run and tumble about the ship in a calm baumgarten in his travels says he was with a pilot who by putting his finger in his mouth and then holding it up prognosticated to us that we should have wind very speedily which indeed proved accordingly all that the modern sailor can do by wetting his finger and lifting it is to feel if there be any movement in the air the digit has long ceased to be a sibyl formerly the brittany fishermen raised the wind at will by procuring the dust swept out of a certain church 
and blowing it in the direction from which they desired the breeze to come. Sardinian sailors also possessed the same useful art. To procure a fine wind, they had nothing to do but to sweep a chapel after mass and blow the dust of it after departing ships. It would be interesting to know if the crew of the Dutch bark practiced any of these devices during their long detention upon the equator. Did they scratch the foremost with a nail? Had they a Russian fin among them? And if so, did they try the experiment of locking him away in the forespeak until he chose to bring about a wind? Ancient mariners were they living, might hardly deem this generation of sailors reasonable in ridiculing the old plans without trying them. For instance, there is an old Dutch notion that if you have long had a contrary wind, and meet a ship bound in the other direction, by throwing a broom at her, the wind will at once grow fair for you. Possibly the Dutch bark did not meet with any vessel in those sixty-three days on which to try the experiment, but supposing a craft to come stealing her way from one cat's paw to another, Surely there would be enough old scrubbing-brushes knocking about to render a trial of the Holland custom both cheap and practicable. It is admitted that Van Tropp's broom at the masthead was regarded by the sailors as the instrument that supplied him with fair winds. Be all this as it may, sixty-three days of dead calm, in which long weeks the ship thus paralyzed makes scarcely a dozen miles of progress is so wearisome that an incident of voyage by canvas that it ought to suggest to mariners of all nations the expediency of looking up some of the old treatments for this kind of oceanic distemper there is no reason in the world why our great-grandfather's tricks of raising the wind if ever successful should be left to lie entombed amongst the lost arts. Happily, however, for the tax and sheetsman is not always a clock calm at sea, and it is equally fortunate for the artistic and imaginative mind when lodged in frames insusceptible of the effect of pitching and rolling, that there should be such things as, to use the language of the land, waves. Appeals have again, and again, been made to the officers of the mercantile marine to dedicate their leisure on shipboard to the measuring of the heights of waves. It is felt that the merchant captain and mate are seafarers who experience every kind of weather, and navigate all the great oceans, and that they have opportunities, therefore, of collecting data on the subject of waves which are denied to the gentlemen of the navy. On the whole, it must be said that very little is known of the altitude of the surge, and that a considerable extension of knowledge in this direction is demanded in the interest of the shipbuilder as well as the mariner. A scientific gentleman, not very long ago, declared it impossible that the tallest sea should exceed six feet because he added the most furious tempest has not a penetrating power beyond that depth 
it will be supposed that he was never off Cape Horn, and that he based his theories on the disturbances during a breezy hour of the surfaces of the Round Pond and the Regent's Canal. Dr. Scorsese pronounced the seas of the Atlantic during heavy weather to run to a height of from forty to forty-five feet. This may be well regarded as a great sea, but it would be interesting to know the elevation of the waves of the South Pacific in high latitudes during a hurricane, since it is certain that for magnitude and velocity the seas of the North Atlantic are not comparable with the stupendous folds which are set running by the storm along the vast stretch of waters which girdles the southern hemisphere. A thing of beauty is a joy forever. A wave is a thing of beauty, but it is only a joy to those who watch it marching in splendor and foam from the safe refuge of the shore. It is a very nauseating condition to voyaging. It makes the bones of a ship creak as if they were full of rheumatism. It fills the brain with a sense of chaos, and one moment swings the moaning traveler to the stars, and the next plunges him into abyss hideous with gloom and the hissing as of millions of snakes. To measure waves in a severe tempest is even more difficult than to mark effects. When the weather rises to such fury as makes the sea colossal enough to render the determination of their height exceedingly important, there is usually too much anxiety and even distraction for observation. The weight of the wind is so violent that it is almost impossible to show one's face to it. The ship, whether a sailing vessel or a steamer hove to, plunges so abominably that a man's main concern is to hold on and save himself from being drowned should one of the frothing mountains tumble on board. There may be other reasons while the officers of the mercantile marine have not very zealously devoted their leisure to measuring the height of waves. But more information than may already be found collected is badly wanted, and unquestionably captains and mates would be doing substantial service by neglecting no opportunity to ascertain, by the best means in their power, the true altitude of ocean seas. From the little blue curling ripple of the cat's paw, Softly travelling in an expiring sigh over the burnished surface of the calm, to the tall, furious, dissolving liquid cliff of the great deep maddened by tempest, is a vast stride, and a hundred pictures lie between. Beauty is so rapidly merged into terror, that it requires the inclusion of several conditions to preserve it. A man may at six o'clock in the evening be admiring a scene from the deck of the ship which an hour later has grown frightful enough to dispatch him below to his prayers. One wants daylight for a storm, and imagination may be kept cool in the presence of the visible. But when the darkness falls and the scene becomes a, a thunderous shadow of blocks of darkness, scintillant with the dust of the sea-fire, fancy quits its posture of admiration and the mind can do little more than wonder whether the day will ever break over the ship again possibly one of the finest storm spectacles ever witnessed was in the bay of bengal 
it was midnight on the port side of the ship the sky was black with thunderclouds those swollen outlines were revealed by the incessant play of lightning the thunder was shock after shock of explosions on the starboard side of the ship the full moon would sometimes dart an icy beam through rifts of the black wings of electric vapor meanwhile it was blowing a gale of wind and the high sea was running the effect of the play of the lightning and the occasional glance of the brilliant moon upon the dark coils of the sea melting into the foam may be imagined the alterations of light were reduplicated by the flashings of phosphorus with which the water was charged to an uncommon degree the picture was magnificently unearthly and outside the pages of milton without expression in literature but for the true andean sea one must go down to cape horn perhaps to go as far as sixty degrees south there are sailors who standing on the wheel of a ship running before these seas will never willingly look behind them lest the sight of the oncoming ramparts of green water arching toward the traffle should unnerve them standing on a deck twenty feet above the water line you yet look at the crest of the of these seas at the top of a mountain the gigantic grace the huge majesty of these liquid titans cannot be described it is necessary to behoove to appreciate their height volume and power to watch from the low broadside the swelling approach of the mighty mass with its freckled front and foamless head flickering in bottle green to the dull light of the gray sky to feel the sweep of the ship up the enormous acclivity and then whilst for the space of a breath only she hangs poised with, with upright masts and shrieking rigging on the headlong brow to look down and behold the valley beneath into which the vessel for an instant after slides like a comet it is difficult to write of the seas which run in in heavy weather off the southernmost point of south africa without risk of being charged with exaggeration they must be seen and a little spell of custom will render admiration easy it is impossible to be tossed by them in such vessels as now make the passage of the horn without wondering by what miracle of luck or phenomenal merit of steamship the old navigators were enabled to beat against them in their small half-decked boats some no bigger than a deal lugger without a touch of the weatherly qualities of such craft there are some curious superstitions concerning waves it was formerly held amongst certain of the devout that the commotion of the sea was owing to the serpents which st patrick had imprisoned in a box when he cast them out of ireland the arab sailors believed that the high seas off the coast of abyssinia were enchanted and whenever they found themselves amongst them they recited verses which were supposed to subdue them an old traveller in a voyage from messina to malta writes that he saw the captain an old and experienced sailor standing at the bow muttering and pointing with his finger 
on being asked what he was doing he replied that he was breaking the force of a fatal wave by making the sign of the cross and saying the prayers proper for the occasion he said that every ninth wave was the dangerous one the writer adds and as the ship was immediately driven more violently and the water suddenly beat high over it this said he is the ninth take the number and count on strange enough every ninth wave was much greater than any of the others and threatened the ship with immediate destruction this wave however whenever it approached the captain by his muttering and signing of the cross seemed to break and the danger was averted tennyson refers to this particular surge in the holy grail when he says till last a ninth one gathering half the deep and full of voices slowly rose and plunged roaring and all the wave was in a flame perhaps some modern skipper whose decks have been swept and who knows what the meaning of the word pooped is may be induced to take the trouble to hunt up the old formulas for laying the sea in a tempest a few verses such as the arabs chant would be a cheaper and much less troublesome application than oil and if the spell saved the cook's galley and a quarter-boat or two the captain however modern in his literary tastes might not consider his inquiries into the black-letter age to have been wholly without purpose but let it not be supposed that the high wave is the dangerous one the regular running surges may all be as tall as the biggest hotel in london with a ninth fellow amongst them as high as the monument and yet not prove nearly as dangerous as the pyramidal seas of the cyclone of all forms of vexed water the cyclonic agitation is the worst here is a whirlwind of astonishing fury so many miles in diameter for a little while it runs a steady sea but presently its gyrations bring up a surge from another quarter then comes the lull followed by a frightful outfly of storm from a direction opposite to the point from which the wind last blew the seas coming into collision fight like wolves they snap and howl leaping high in conified shapes in the very similitude of sentient passion the staggering of the ship is indescribable there is no rhythmic swing to give to her motions something of the vibration of the pendulum her decks are filled with water whilst her bow drives into a chasm that has opened under her forefoot a valley yawns under her stern and a hill of water flashes up on either side it has not been suggested that the altitude of the cyclonic wave should be determined possibly there is no eye afloat equal to such an undertaking another very uncomfortable sea is the volcanic wave it is not very long ago that a vessel steaming through quiet waters on a dark night was suddenly hurled upon by an invisible billow that was reckoned to be between thirty and forty feet high three such waves passed under her 
the last being the least in volume, and then all was dead flatness of ocean again. The stoutest heart may well thump to such an encounter as this. To see the wave coming is to be prepared, but to be tossed from the tender delight of a dead level on the dark night into throes as violent as ever hurricane wrought in water is one of the most alarming of sensations. People fall out of bed. The captain, who is asleep in his chart-house, is tumbled onto the deck and reckons his ship might have gone ashore in a gale of wind. There are many distracting noises of broken crockery, much panic amongst the cocks and hens and turkeys, loud cries from the passengers' berths, and confused shouts in the forecastle. The slipping into still water again merely heightens the general bewilderment. Waves of this kind are caused by submarine earthquakes, and it is very fortunate indeed for both passengers and sailors that they are exceedingly rare. It is not necessary to go to the great oceans for bad seas. The nasty, snappish wave of the narrow waters may be too insignificant to be worth measuring, but no more uncomfortable surge runs, as most people know who have crossed the English Channel or the Irish Sea, in what longshoremen call dirty weather. Yet despite its terrors, the wave remains a thing of beauty. There is nothing so triumphant in life, nothing that rears itself so royally, with its plumed head and resistless advance. In all forms it is glorious, raising in sublimity as it grows. What is there to surpass in that particular quality of magnificence with which old oceans endure its creations, the great comber of the Western America and South African seaboards? There is inexpressible solemnity of grace in its slow approach upon the shore, and in the regal obeisance of the towering head, the plumed gear of which it seems to doff as it bends and breaks into a snowstorm in thunder which finds echoes as of an organ in the caverns and hollows of the cliffs. The height of a breaker of this kind might be easily got, for it is hardly less tall and fine than it is in heavy weather. It is not, however, the altitude of the comber that it wanted, but that of the great mid-ocean seas through which the ships go plunging. Further experiments in this direction are required, and science would certainly be served by their being undertaken. End of section 10. Recording by Capricia Page.